Well, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 13 tonight, and I can spend as long as I like because you're here. (laughs) It doesn't matter how many of you there are, we're going to really try and get to grips with these wonderful little, little parables, little sort of pictures that are given to us. Very short, isn't it? Just three verses there. Now, there are a number of stories, if you look through the internet or if you read through papers, of super entrepreneurs. Have you heard of these people? These wonderful entrepreneurs, they're people who put their lives on hold. You read their stories, they're supposed to be very inspiring. They put their lives completely on hold. They sell their houses, and they put every single last penny into something that they really believe in, an idea. And the stories of these people and their success tells us of a, of a combination of hard work, self-belief, sacrifice, or, and in you know, most cases... Uh, and, in, and often, a generous helping of dumb luck that means that they end up making an absolute fortune on their idea. Now, what drives these entrepreneurs, these super entrepreneurs? Well, what drives them, as you read through these articles, is a complete commitment to their idea, to what they want to do. They're totally sold on it. A belief that they must and they will be a success. Every, every one of these guys, they're like that. It's an obsession. It fills their world. So much so, they'll risk absolutely everything. They'll pay the cost, whatever it might be. Now, these two tiny parables tell us that the kingdom of heaven is just like that. It's just like that. It's all in. These two men in this, these two little stories, they share this in common. They both sell all that they have to get the one thing they really want. Yeah? They give everything for their obsession. It becomes their obsession, doesn't it? And that's like the kingdom of heaven. So I just want to dig a little bit deeper into this idea of the kingdom of heaven again. Now, in previous parables, uh, this is called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And they're two sort of expressions that are interchangeable. So Matthew, the reason that Matthew's writing to a Jewish readership, you know this? Yeah, Matthew's Gospel, written largely to Jewish people. And Jewish people, out of a sense of reverence, don't like to use the name God. They've got a problem with with that. So rather than using the name God, Kingdom of God, they substitute it out for Kingdom of Heaven, so as not to show any sort of disrespect. It's just a way of revering what they're talking about. So this is an expression. Same thing, though, kingdom of God. And broadly speaking, the kingdom of God is the realm over which Jesus is the undisputed king of kings. It's fairly simple to grasp like that, isn't it? So put simply, as far as the Bible is concerned, though, there are only two types of people in this world. There are people who are in God's kingdom, part of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, And there are people who are not. Two types of people. And the next parable, if you look down at your page, actually is a parable of the dragnet. The dragnet. And uh, you've got two piles of fish in there. Just showing you. Only two piles. There's just two piles of fish here. Those in the kingdom, those not. So, in that way, being in the kingdom is like saying, it's a shorthand, isn't it, for saying, "I'm I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I've been born again. And actually, it's a really helpful way of thinking. This idea of kingdom is a really helpful way of thinking through what a Christian really is. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. 
So presently, of course, Jesus' kingdom is not a physical one, is it? In fact, he himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what he said in John 18. A day is coming, though, when it will be. And that's what God's people are looking forward to, isn't it? That's the day we're waiting for. In fact, Jesus taught, didn't he? He taught his people to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That's what we're waiting for, isn't it? Your kingdom come, your will be done. That is the full establishment of God's kingdom. So that's where everything's going. And so, but, but that's not the case today, is it? So we don't live in a world like that. Even though Jesus is the king, he's rightfully rules, doesn't he? Not everyone recognizes him as such. So we live in a world that's full of people that don't even like the thought of bowing the knee to Jesus. They don't want to do what he says. In fact, most of them don't even want to know what he says. He's not their king. Most people are too busy, aren't they, making their own rules up, deciding for themselves what is right and wrong and how they should live. But that should not be the case for the Christian because we're members of a different kingdom. A friend of mine recently finished the process of becoming a British citizen, a member of the United Kingdom, the British sort of kingdom. And it was a very long and difficult and costly process. He tells me this all the time. And we take it for granted, don't we, being members of the United Kingdom, of, of you know, British citizens. But there are literally millions of people who would make massive sacrifices, who put their lives on the line to have citizenship, the kind of citizenship that most of us in the UK were born with. It's a really desired thing, isn't it? Now, a Christian is literally a citizen of heaven's kingdom, of God's kingdom. They've decided that they love Jesus and they want him to be their king even now. That's the definition of a Christian. And the marks of a true citizen of, say, this kingdom that we live in is that we, well, we want to live according to our government, don't we? <laughs> I suppose that's what it is to be. And so, it, so it should be for the Christian, isn't it? We should long to please our king, to obey him, to honour him, to tell everyone how wonderful he is. In fact, citizenship in God's kingdom should mean so much to a Christian man or woman that they would give up anything for it. Anything. It, it, become, it should become an obsession. People get obsessed about all sorts of other things. That should be our obsession, shouldn't it? Just as a foreign-born citizen of the UK, think it through, just tease this through. They have to give up former allegiances to wherever it is that they've come to, come from, whatever kingdom they were part of. Likewise, a citizen of God's kingdom must loosen their ties to the kingdom of this world. We've got to do that. We've got to get that in our heads and learn to live a new way in accordance with a new allegiance. And then one more final thought about the kingdom. Just thinking this thing, because this is imagery used through all the parables, isn't it? This kingdom of heaven idea. One last thought. The kingdom, God's kingdom, is completely tied up with its king. Have you ever thought about that? That actually any kingdom, really, if it's ruled properly by a king, is only as good, actually, as its king, isn't it? Yeah? To love Jesus, then, is to love his rule over you, which sounds strange to many ears. To love his kingdom is to love him. He's tied up with his kingdom. 
To become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to be, in, in a real way, united with the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive him as he received you. And so as we get into these parables, uh, there's a little amp preamble there, but as we get into these, 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 these parables of the kingdom, I want you to see clearly that Jesus, in these two little pictures, Jesus is the hidden treasure, right? Jesus is the pearl of great price. That's where we're going tonight. So let's have a look at these parables just briefly together. If you look down at your, at your Bibles, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold everything that he had. And he bought that field. In November 1992, a farmer living near the village of Hoxney in Suffolk, he lost a hammer in one of his fields. And so he uh, asked his mate, Eric, Eric, mate, can I, can I, well, should I do the Suffolk accent? I used to come from there. Eric, mate, can I borrow your metal detector? So he got his metal detector and he went looking for the hammer in the field, you know, buzzing around like those people do on the beach. Uh, and uh, his friend, his friend Eric, happened with his metal detector upon something significant. It was, it was beeping. Beep, beep, beep. And uh, as he started to look around in the ground, he found 24 bronze coins. Then looking further, he found 565 gold coins. And then further, 14,191 silver coins plus hundreds of gold and silver spoons and jewellery and statues, all of them dating back to the Roman Empire. Can you imagine finding that in your field? The biggest treasure hall that anyone's ever found in, in our country. And even though they had to report the so-called Hoxney hoard to the uh, local authorities, they still, uh, you know, because it's legally the pro property of Britain, they still managed to come away with a cool 1.75 million pounds each just for finding it. It's staggering, isn't it? The Hoxney Hoard, now you can go and see it in the British Museum. Amazing find in a field. Just great little illustration, really, isn't it? And that's a pretty exceptional story. But hidden treasure, actually, in Jesus' day, hidden treasure wasn't that unusual an idea. It wouldn't have been so fantastical. See, there were no banks in which you could keep your money safe in those days. So the wealth of common people was usually bound up in their property, and they didn't really have much, much surplus. So you didn't need bank accounts. And when you did have some savings, the only reasonably safe place to keep it would have been in a hole in the ground. Imagine that. Now, if you're familiar with Jesus' stories, you'll know this is precisely what a servant did with his talent uh, that he was given the par in the parable of the talent. He hides it in the ground. That's the only place you can put it. Now, additionally to, uh, additionally to this, if an enemy attacked, if an enemy was attacking your town, it was common practice for everybody to get their valuable items and go out somewhere and bury them, bury the valuable property, to avoid the plunderers taking their wealth. If you're going to run away and you've got stuff that you can't carry with you, you bury it in a hole. And there was a, it's recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus that in AD 70, when Jerusalem was flattened, that uh, lots of the household slaves 
knew exactly where all the treasure was buried from the households they'd served in. And so they came back and quickly got all of the hidden treasure, made off with the plunder. Now, in this story, we have a man. Uh, look at the way the story un- unfolds. He's, he's going about his business, whatever that might be. He's in a field that he does not own. And he, maybe he's working there, maybe he's been employed by the owner to do a little bit of farming for him. But he doesn't own the land. He's wandering around, minding his own business. Uh, and as, he, as he's working this land, perhaps digging or plowing or something, he hits something unusual in the ground. And he glimpses down. Something shiny down there. Gets on his knees, starts to sweep away some of the dirt, move the dust around. And he cannot believe what he's found. He has found a vast treasure of immeasurable value. Absolute, once-in-a-lifetime find. And so what does he do? Well, thinking on his feet, he quickly covers the treasure over, uh, evidently, uh, and he makes the ground really good so no one can see it, because he doesn't want anyone else finding this treasure. Uh, And then Jesus says, in his joy, he goes home and he sells everything that he has so he can buy the field. Now notice, the man buys this field ethically and legally. There's no mucking about here. He's not being silly. Uh, the treasure, you see, doesn't actually belong to the original owner by Jewish law, and neither does the owner of the field actually know about it. Otherwise, you know, he would have removed it before the sale, wouldn't he? The man who found it wants to own it with no question marks hanging over it, so nobody can make some sort of a trouble for him later on down the line. See, he, he could have run away with it, but he doesn't. And neither does he grab some of it and use it to buy the field. There's nothing funny going on here. He wants to own it completely, totally, um, with no question marks hanging over his head. And to do that, he is willing to give up everything that he owns so that he can have the treasure free and clear. And so he goes home, and he puts every last possession he has up for sale. It's all on eBay. Even the cat is up on eBay, the whole lot's going down to the shirt on his back. He is selling everything he can to raise the funds. And taking every penny he's got, he properly and officially purchases this field, and it's his. And the point of the story is very, very simple, isn't it? This man finds something so valuable that he decides to sell everything that he owns Everything on the face of the earth that's his, he gives it up so that he might possess the treasure. It's a simple story, really, isn't it? Well, let's look at the second story as Jesus continues. Hold that one in your head, and we'll look at them both together. So the second one's uh, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven's like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had, and he bought it. It's a very similar story, isn't it? But here we have uh, a man who's a, a pearl merchant, and he is slightly different. He's actively, he's actively seeking out pearls, isn't he? He's looking for the most beautiful pearl that he can find. He's looking for the one. And his discovery, though, despite the fact that he's looking, is still by chance, actually, isn't it? He chances upon it in his searching. But he is a seeker. He's looking for it. He's a bit like one of those, I mean, I picture him as being a bit like one of those slightly mental people you get on TV. I don't know if you've ever looked on daytime TV at these sort of people that buy up 
storage units. Yeah, you ever seen any of this stuff? Uh, the storage hunter or something like that. Uh, and they visit every auction house they can do. That's how they use all of their time. And they're sifting through warehouses and barns looking for one of these fantastic finds. The find of a lifetime. Now, in Jesus' day, a flawless pearl is a very, very valuable object. It's in the same league as a, as a really nice diamond would be today. It's a very, very special item. It's as precious as any gem. That's why Jesus uses pearls in his parables. Yeah? Don't cast your pearls before swine. He doesn't say diamonds. He says pearls. Because pearls, that's the one. You don't, you don't throw those in front of anyone. They're the ultimate value. And they hold their value. And this man knows his pearls. Pearls are his life, aren't they? He's a pearl expert. And this pearl expert discovers a pearl that is so incredible, so flawless, that again, he is willing to sell everything he can to obtain it. Yeah, he's off selling the cat, everything on eBay, to get this, the whole lot. And although pearls would usually appreciate in value over time, this is still, get this, it's still a high-risk investment for this man. He puts all of his eggs in one basket. I mean, he's probably got a few pearls. He's selling all of those. The, the pearl collection goes as well for this pearl expert, the whole lot, because he reasons with himself, this, this pearl here, this is where I'm going to invest everything. The whole lot goes here. So both of these men take their diverse goods, their diverse investments, whatever they might be, and they invest everything in one place. Two men who've done that. And so it's the same message reinforced two times here in these parables. God's kingdom is worth giving up everything for. That's the clear message, isn't it? If you could just obtain God's kingdom, you should give up everything for it. It is priceless. It is flawless. It is beyond value of or anything that you might have. These two stories, then, are about counting the cost of following Jesus. That's what they're about. Jesus is his kingdom. He's the king of the kingdom. And to help you do that, I'm going to give you five facts about his kingdom. The Apostle Paul said this. Listen carefully. This is from Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. That's what these parables are saying, isn't it? Everything else that I might have had of value, I now, not only am I selling them, I actually consider them, well, I don't care about them anymore. They're rubbish to me that I might gain Christ. So here's the first thing. The kingdom is priceless beyond value. Give you five things. First one, priceless beyond value. God's kingdom is the realm over which Christ rules and blesses eternally. And Jesus said this, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? You can have the whole world, but forfeit your soul. To lose your soul comes to the same thing, really, doesn't it, as missing out on the kingdom of God. That's really what he's saying. Weigh it up. Kingdom of God or whole world, which one do you want? I don't know your situation. You might have it you know, pretty good here in this world. You might think your life's pretty, pretty nice. Uh, you know, those multi-billionaire entrepreneurs, it's quite funny looking, looking at some of them. 
Some of them are so fabulously wealthy that they do the absolute pinnacle of what you do when you're really wealthy, which is you buy an island. You buy, you know, so you can have Ruins Island or something, you know, it's on the map. But let me say, those islands, if you try to find them on Google Earth, they are so small, it's unbelievable. But that's the absolute pinnacle, isn't it? For these mega, mega rich, I've got an island, I'm so rich. And yet it's so small, you can, can barely make it out. You might have the cars, you might have the houses, you might have friends and money, but unless you are rich towards God, unless you have treasure in heaven, you need to wake up and realize that everything you have now, all that you possess is only going to rust and perish and fade and rot and it will be gone and you will have nothing. On the other hand, though, the kingdom of God is so valuable with all the riches of this world, you could never even purchase it. Yet, the poorest of the poor in this life can possess the eternal, priceless treasure of the kingdom. And they can, they can possess it freely. It's a wonderful, strange paradox, isn't it? One author describes the kingdom like this. Listen to this. It's a lovely, lovely description. The kingdom is a heavenly treasure lying in the field of this poverty-stricken, bankrupt, accursed world. It is a prize sufficient to make every one of Earth's poor, blind, sinful inhabitants immeasurably rich for all eternity. The treasure includes salvation, forgiveness, love, joy, peace, virtue, goodness, glory, eternal life in heaven, the presence of God under his smile, and Christ himself. Literally everything of eternal value is encompassed in the treasure of the kingdom. Only an absolute fool would be unwilling to relinquish everything he owns to gain it. That's the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? The kingdom is priceless. It is beyond value. And you can have it if you would only seek it. You can have it if you would only seek it. Second thing, so it's priceless beyond value. Second thing is this. The kingdom is not, understand it is not out there on display. It's not superficially visible at first glance. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? The treasure was hidden. The pearl had to be hunted for. Did you catch that? They were not obvious to the casual observer. And just like the parable, the, the kingdom is hidden in plain sight. It only becomes visible to those who seek after it. Kingdom of God is there. It's funny, isn't it? It's there for all to see, actually, but people don't see it. It's a strange thing going on there. It's not obvious, especially to those, especially to those who care nothing for it, who don't really care about it, or to those who object to it. Jesus said this, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again said that to Nicodemus. There's a man who's steeped in the scriptures, isn't he? A teacher of Israel. It is, oh, you, can't even see, you, you can't see this kingdom of God unless, unless you're actually born again. Something supernatural has to happen to you before you can see the kingdom. Before you see it for the treasure that it really is, a miracle has to happen. And that's why the world around us doesn't really get why Christians are so passionate about God's kingdom. They don't understand it. The reality is, though, that they are the blind ones. The God of this age has blinded them, the Bible tells us, so that they can't believe the gospel or even start to understand why we live 
as we do, with the values that we have. They can't understand it. Why would you give up your Sunday afternoon or your Sunday morning, get out of bed early on Sunday morning to go to church? To meet? Why would you want to meet with people outside of your age category and spend time with them and get to know them? The world doesn't really understand that. Why do you want to gather with people to read an old book and sing religious songs? Why would you restrict your behavior? Why would you submit to God's rules, turn from pleasure? It's madness. It's a mad way to live. No matter what anyone tells you, people are not naturally inclined to seek God, are they? They're not. Yet Jesus promises that those who do seek will find, doesn't he? We just sang it in our song, didn't we? Seek ye first. You see, those who do seek, listen to this, those who do seek the kingdom do so because God intervenes and moves them to do so. Gives them a passion. Such is the love of God that he gently draws men and women into his kingdom, opens their eyes that they might suddenly see the, valuable, the value and, and, and the, the amazing worth of it. Perhaps the whole Christianity thing has been a mystery to some people, maybe to some of you, I don't know. But will you hear the call today? Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Suddenly you'll realize the great value and worth of the kingdom. So that's the second thing. It's not superficially visible. But the third thing is this. The kingdom is personally grasped by individual people and appropriated by them. So in both stories, do you notice, it's the key figure is an individual, not a group of people. You've got the man, haven't you? You've got the merchant. Now that would have been a very important point for Jesus' audience, who were largely Jewish people and believed that they were, as a nation together, part of the Messiah's kingdom. They would have, that's where they would have been coming from. And we likewise have got to be wary of thinking that the basis of our citizenship in this kingdom has anything to do with our part as a collective of people. You do not enter God's kingdom by being part of a group, even if it is a group who are, as my friend likes to say, baptized, catechized, immunized, and vaccinated. Upbringing and membership of a local church do not qualify you for entrance in God's kingdom, do they? It's got to be appropriated individually and personally by, your, by you yourself. You must come as you are, an individual, and bow the knee to the king of the kingdom. Another friend of mine, um, in, uh, it was the, like the first teaching job I had, I think, I got to know him quite well. Uh, he said to me one afternoon, as we were talking about uh, what I believed, he said, you know what, Andy? When I get to the pearly gates, what I'm going to do is, I'm just going to tell them I'm with you. I'm Andy's mate. It's not going to work, I said to him. That's not going to work. Evidence of membership is not simply membership of a community or just a friendship with other people. It is personal, it is individual. And it will be seen in your personal love for the Lord Jesus Christ, won't it? Your trust in his promises as your Lord and Saviour. That's the third thing. So it's personal. You grab it personally. The fourth thing is this. The kingdom, the kingdom of God is the true source, actually, of real joy. That's the one place to really go for joy, the kingdom of God. 
And you see it in verse 44. I think it's one of the most staggering things of these stories, actually. Look at it. In his joy, we're told, he went out and sold all he had. Can you imagine someone joyfully doing that? It's a strange image. All of his valued possessions, everything that he's ever invested in in this world, some things he probably quite liked, but he's not just, he's not because, oh, I suppose I ought to get rid of this, and you know, I like it, but it's going to have to go. No, no, no. He joyfully gets rid of it all. Absolute joy in him. He's going to give over everything he can get for whatever money he can get for it so he can buy his possession. Now, why? Because he's looking forward to taking possession of a treasure that so far outshines all that he had before that he's not even bothered by what he's selling. Once he's got his field, he will possess something so great that he won't give what he owned before even a second thought, will he? We are very prone, aren't we, to forget the value of our citizenship? We are very prone. The story's told, it's a lovely little story, this, of Martin Luther. It's great, all these Luther stories coming out, isn't it, in the Reformation celebration year. The German reformer, he was apparently very down one day, going into a bit of a depression. The Pope was after him, his colleagues were all bickering amongst themselves, and he felt the heavy pressure that came with being a professor, a pastor, and a father. They're all mounting up on him. And he was also added to this in excruciating pain from kidney stones. And as he moped about the house, apparently muttering under his breath, his uh, wife, Katerina Van Bora, announced in a solemn voice, God is dead. Luther looked at his wife in puzzlement, and he replied, God is not dead. Catherine went on to say, well, it seems like God is dead by the way that you're acting. Luther thanked his wife, apparently, and then etched a Latin word in his desk, vivit. Vivit means he lives. And whenever things weren't going well, Luther was, and Luther was tempted to complain, he just looked at his desk. He lives. He lives. The king's alive. And once more, by that simple word, he felt invigorated. Now, there are many things in this world that drag us down, aren't there? This world's full of pain and frustration. We know people who are mourning and sad. This world is not as it should be. But the Christian must never forget that his king lives and his king rules over all of it. Your king rules. And he is our source of joy. He's our source of joy. The world might think that we're giving up our freedom and our happiness, but in reality we're trading in a dull a monochrome, and ultimately unfulfilling existence for the glory and the colour of a kingdom that will last forever. That's the reality. We need to stop and think about the reality, don't we? Well, here's a fifth and final point. Saving faith has a high cost. A high cost. In both cases, this prize was bought, wasn't it? It was bought. And yet, God's kingdom can't be bought. God's kingdom can't be bought. God's kingdom is priceless. This kingdom is a kingdom of wonders, a glorious kingdom. To be a citizen of it is an amazing thing. There's no way that you could put any value on the kingdom of God. Even if you did give up everything that you have or that I have, we couldn't come close to buying citizenship in God's kingdom. The Bible is absolutely clear you cannot buy your way into God's kingdom. 
no matter if he sold everything. In fact, Jesus says that it's very hard for a wealthy person to enter his kingdom, doesn't he? And in actual fact, the moralists trying to do all their good stuff didn't fare any better either with all their rule-keeping. The entrance qualification to God's kingdom... I mean, I know they say the entrance qualification to joining the United Kingdom's hard, but the qualification for joining God's kingdom is absolute, unqualified perfection. You must keep the whole of God's law perfectly. A number of people came to Jesus asking, didn't they, "What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the standard that I need? What was Jesus' reply? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's an impossibly high standard. At best, by that standard, we are left at the gates of heaven, unable to pay. Able only to glance at the kingdom from afar. There is only one hope. And that is that Jesus pays your entrance fee. Jesus sits the test for you. And that fee is huge. The Apostle Peter summed it up vividly. You know this, don't you? Peter says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed. That's not what paid for your entrance. But the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect, the perfect one, gave his life. That was the cost of our citizenship, and it was paid in full by God's own son on the cross at Calvary. There he paid the ultimate price to cover all your debts and make you his. Now, these parables illustrate the true cost, and therefore they illustrate the true value of what Jesus did to save us. It's always, a, you know, I run these um, Christianity Explored courses at our church, and it's always a bit of a paradox when we get to this bit, and it confuses people. So we teach about grace quite early on in the course, the unmerited gift, uh, and, and then as we go through the course, we lay down the challenge of participants on the course. If they want to become a Christian, you've got to count the cost. So you've told me it's an unmerited gift, absolutely free gift, but I've got to really count the cost. I've got to weigh it all up. But that's the point of these parables, isn't it? What is the real cost to a sinner if they desire to enter God's kingdom? The sacrifice we are asked to make is to give up everything. Give up everything. That's what you're asked to make. To let go of all you hold dear, everything that might compete with your heart, for your heart with, with Jesus. And to willingly lose it all. And yet, you will not be plunged into poverty. We are to give it all up, like the man here selling all that he has, joyfully, because his mind's on the treasure that he now possesses. That's the gospel call, isn't it? Jesus is the treasure. To possess him as a treasure beyond any calculation. Do you know, I, we, we know this, but do we really know it? Do you really know that? That giving up everything's actually easy if you could just see the value of what you're getting. Nothing more you could possibly desire. So in closing then, let me apply this in two ways. First of all, to the believer, these parables. This is how I would apply it. 
Have you really comprehended the treasure that you have? Sit there and think about it. If you start to pine for what you've lost, or if following Jesus seems just so hard right now, remember what you've gained and be encouraged. Remember what you've gained when it's hard. You have traded in, what did Paul call it? Garbage, actually. The best this world can offer, garbage, for glory. You have traded in the empty promises of this world for a treasure that will last forever. Now hold on to that by faith. Whatever comes your way, hold on to that by faith. And let me apply it a slightly different way to those who might consider Christ. Consider this offer. Do count the cost. Count the cost. Do not set out to follow Jesus half-heartedly. You don't follow him half-heartedly. Jesus said, didn't he? He gave a picture, didn't he? That's like building a tower. He gave this little picture. Building a tower and then not counting the cost to see whether you can complete the tower. Now, he's probably talking about a defense tower here. It's a, this, is a, this is a disaster to start building a defense tower or to build your defenses up without considering whether you can complete them. And what happens? People will laugh. That's what happens in the story. People just laugh at this man who does that. Jesus says, don't put your hand to the plow and then turn back. It's a nonsense. Ask any Christian. We've all been, haven't we, broken hearted by seeing people we thought were genuine falling away because they didn't count the cost. See, if you do not surrender everything, then you have not really, what? You've not really grasped the value of what you will possess. We've got to preach the gospel like this, haven't we? And you will find that there is nothing there to support you when trials come. Nothing when the crisis hits to look at and realize, I made the same choice, actually, when I gave it all up for Christ. Jesus calls his followers to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him. To forfeit the whole world to gain your eternal soul. Those are the parables of the treasure and the pearls.